Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast for another week. This is your weekly look at the key stories that have got people talking this week. My name is Angela Priestley and I'm the co-founder of Agenda Media, which publishes Women's Agenda. And I'm here with Georgie Dent, our contributing editor on Women's Agenda. How are you, Georgie? I'm well, thank you. Happy to be here. And on the phone elsewhere in the city, we have Shivani Gopal, who's the founder and CEO of The Remarkable Woman and the co-founder and CEO of, of the fintech startup Upstreet. How are you, Shivani? I'm great. Thank you. All right. So a lot to talk about this week um, and not all great news, unfortunately. So it has been quite a difficult week. And on the show, we will be talking about domestic and family violence in Australia and what, if anything, it will take to see a turning point on how the issue is uh, treated here and, and what our government will be doing about it. Um, also, we're looking at the stagnating numbers on women in STEM and we'll hear from Australia's ambassador for women in STEM, Lisa Harvey-Smith, and what makes an employer a good employer. We know now this week that 119 employers have just received the Employer of Choice for Gender Equality citation from uh, Widgia the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. So we'll talk about that and our thoughts on what actually makes an employer good for women. Um, So, but first of all, starting off with um, the news that um, really I know everyone's been talking about this week and it has been just over a week since we did hear the horrific details of the murder of Hannah Clark and her three children by her estranged husband. Um, it has got the community talk and we have run multiple pieces on this across varying issues of what occurred and I encourage you to go back and have a read of those pieces. Hannah Clark at the time was the eighth woman to die so far this year due to violence against women and that's according to the stats from Counting Dead Women and Destroy the Joint. Um, Since then we've sadly heard the news that a ninth woman um, has died and we will no doubt those numbers Will, they will continue to rise in 2020. That that 2020. That's the um, the really sad and unfortunate thing that is is on our minds constantly. Um, Georgie, I will go to you first. You've you, you write a lot about these issues, and I mean, just uh, just this week we have seen Scott Morrison come out. He's uh, promising to raise the family violence crisis at an upcoming COAG meeting. Do you think we're at a at a turning point here? I I really sincerely hope that we are. I think that um, you know it's it's really difficult because we know that the numbers of women that are dying and even children that are dying are horrific. And and this is not a new problem. I think a lot of people thought that when we saw the incredible raw footage of Rosie Batty speak to the media directly after her. Um, estranged partner had killed her son Luke. I think there was a real sense then that that would be a turning point. Um, there are certain crimes or certain circumstances that do sort of capture the national attention mm. in a way that's different from others and the death of um, Hannah Clark and her three children is certainly one of those. Mm. I think that it is important that we sort of we do seize on the fact that we do currently have the national attention on this issue and I think um, it's been all over various news stations. It's been on radio. It's been in print. It's been everywhere online. And I think what I have found um, not heartening because there's absolutely nothing mm. heartening about this story, but that the media have been going to so many of the frontline experts who work in in the shelters, who work in the services that are trying to help women and children when they're in their time of need, and. 
what we know here is that Hannah Clark actually was fearing for her life and I think her, her brother um, spoke to 7.30 for a report that aired on um, Tuesday night and he basically said that she felt supported by the police but she didn't feel safe. And I think that probably sends chills down the spines of lots of different women um, because she had had interactions with the police because of past conduct. I think she felt that she had a family around her that were helping her. I don't think for one minute she imagined that it would get to this. But what we do know um, from, from the extensive research that is done, that has been done on this subject, is that these sorts of violent crimes where a person is driven to kill their whole family, it is often preceded by violence, but it's not always preceded by violence. One of the biggest risk factors is a desire for control and a sense of entitlement over the family unit. So when that is taken away from a person, which obviously we know would occur when there's a separation, that is when a person can be in incredible danger, even if they haven't ever had their partner be violent towards them. And I think, you know, my great hope from this is that we get serious about managing this issue. You know, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison has said in Parliament, we must do all that we can. And we need to do that. And doing all that we can involves funding services to ensure that any woman who needs help has access to that help when and where and how they need it. We need to have extensive um, communication campaigns. You know, it's a safety issue. We've had other issues like smoking or OHS on building sites. We have had campaigns where we have changed attitudes where people's safety is at risk. And what we know very clearly is that women and children are at risk when we have boys or men, for whatever reason, growing up with this need for control and for this sense of entitlement over the women in their lives. Those sorts of issues are huge red flags and they need to be dealt with. I think we need to, you know, I heard on Radio National this morning, Fran Kelly was in, um, interviewing Tanya Plibersek and she made reference to the fact that $800 million has been spent on this sort of, um, on, on violence against women. And my immediate response was, how much do we spend on national security? Because this is terrorism and it is claiming so many more lives every single year in Australia than terrorism ever has. Mm. And we need to stop thinking about it as in terms of... I, I frankly, I, have, I don't care what the cost is. I think if we can save one woman and one family, one community, the trauma that Hannah Clark um, faced, mm. then it's or money anyone, spent. the terror anyone. that people face in these circumstances yeah. in and in these situations. And I think, I mean, you, you brought up terrorism there and we spoke about this last week if this had been if, if this many people had died due to uh, various uh, terrorist incidents in Australia we would have seen wall-to-wall media coverage we would have seen minister after minister coming out over and over again giving press conferences giving updates on the situation we would have seen Scott Morrison um, address it this much earlier than he has um, but and I think I think one of the reasons yeah. for that is that um, you know, and you think about two examples that are often raised are the one punch mm-hmm. um, and yep. the lockout laws that eventuated in Sydney because there were a number of attacks where um, young men died, mm. um, you know, after one punch attacks. Also, you think about the response, the national response we saw when there were the needles in the strawberries. You know, we had a task force. This was a matter of national emergency. And I think one of the reasons we haven't seen that with violence against women is because this it is considered a problem that is too difficult to tackle. There is not 
one simple solution. Um, but I think what we have got to come to accept is that that's not a good enough reason to ignore it. And mm. I think we do need to put pressure on every single person who is in a position of power to be contemplating this and how we can actually start to make a difference because we cannot just stand up every time something like this happens and say it's not good enough, we, you know, how did we let this mm. happen? Yeah, and there, there are definitely easy opportunities to get out there and, and, and better fund some of these services, particularly where we've seen some of the funding removed as we have in recent years. Yeah, and also the fact is that a number of the critical s- services out there have been reporting for a long time that there's cr- th- the demand is surging and they don't have the capacity to you know, to meet that need. Mm. Um, Shivani, I might bring you in here. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Do you foresee a turning point? Look, unfortunately, the honest answer is no. It should be a turning point. It has to be a turning point. If this isn't the turning point, then what is? But let's look at the facts here. Nine women have died already. We're only We're still in February 2020. We still haven't even finished off the month. 61 women died last year. How many more women need to die um, for something to be a turning point? Shouldn't the turning point have been, you know, at the first woman who was murdered in 2020 or the first woman who was murdered in 2019? Why does it need to stack up? Why does it need to be the murder of a, a loving mother and her three beautiful children for us to, for us to really, you know, stand up and, and take notice? What's also really frightening um, is that when it came to Hannah Clark, uh, you know, she left her ex-husband. Um, and, um, and, you know, Karen Chowler, who has actually come out, um, you know, who's done a lot of um, mm. ambassador work around domestic violence, given that his sister was also killed at the hands of her ex-partner, um, you know, he also said that back then she had also said to her husband that she was going to leave him. And then three days later, he killed her in, in, his, uh, in her sleep. And since then, I've seen so many other Facebook posts coming out through all different social media mechanisms, actually, talking about when women see another woman die at the hands of domestic violence, the hands of their partner, they then think, is this how my story is going to end too? Because the frightening chill that goes down their spine is, well, I also left my partner. Am I ever going to be safe? And whose responsibility is it to keep these women safe? It is the responsibility of our government, of our law and order forces to actually keep them safe. And we're not actually doing that. We're not taking it seriously enough. And I know that, you know, uh, Scott Morrison has promised to raise this, but talking is not enough. Actions and money is really what matters here. We need the support. We need the resources. Anthony Albanese talked about it um, in Insiders over the weekend, and he's called for a national summit on domestic violence. Again, you can talk and talk and talk about these things, it doesn't take away the fact that $300 million was cut from domestic violence services and that money is yet to be returned. And so until we really do something and you know put our money where our mouth is as a government, there is going to be no turning point because there is no funding to create it. And that is what is so infuriating. And, you know, Georgie, to your point, I, think, I thought you made a great point around, you know, spotting the signs of abuse because sometimes it isn't, um, you know, the, the abuse that leads rather to this horrific kind of domestic violence where women and children are being killed um, are often very nuanced and, and are often hard to spot. So one of the things that I actually want to talk about was one of the, the leading factors to this kind of abuse, which is often financial abuse and the kind of abuse that isolates women away from their mm. friends and family. 
Um, and this is one of the kinds of things that, you know, people don't tend to talk about because it's really hard to spot. You know, you might see a woman, at, you know, um, who you're talking to at a cafe very well to do and she may be overly budgeting and you may think, oh, she's just being responsible with her money. But no, that might actually be one of the telltale signs that she's actually experiencing financial abuse. So some of the top telltale signs of financial abuse are when your partner is overly checking your account and asking you why and where you've spent your money, uh, when you're being blocked out of access, whether it be your phone banking app or whether it be internet banking, or whether you're being controlled on just how much you spend. So I, I really encourage women to think about these sorts of behaviours, if it's happening to them or if it's happening to friends they know of um, and just you know look out for some of these telltale signs so that we can also at a grassroots level do our level best to create some level of turning point because unfortunately it's not happening at a, at a national level. Mm. Um, one final thing I might just um, put on this topic is that when we quote these numbers of, of women who have been killed at, uh, due to violence, we take it from uh, Counting Dead Women which um, and you can find those figures on the Destroy the Joint Facebook page. And I know that any story, Georgie, I imagine you ever write on this, it, it, you go back and look at that page and, mm. and see where it's at. What a lot of people don't realise is that that is done by volunteers. It's unfunded work. It's done by a number of just uh, passionate women who, who troll through media reports and try to come up with this figure. And it is being used extensively across the media. But um, the fact is that we don't have a, a national or official toll on this. So anything that is uh, officially funded to, to keep up the number on this, like we would with uh, the road toll. Yeah. And we published a piece on that issue this week and... I think it's interesting because the numbers do really bring it home for us and it is something that we've seen, I feel a bit mm. of a change in the discourse around this is that over the last few years we have been able to point to numbers. Mm. Um, but I, I think that this that there is an opportunity to fund this as well and to, to make it easier on these people who, who do spend their time uh, coming up with these figures. Well, exactly. And also if you're thinking about um, low-hanging fruit in mm. this area, if the government, if anyone in leadership is serious about changing this, everyone knows... If you don't measure something, you can't change it. So that that is sort of one of the most simple steps mm. that could be taken because mm-hmm. we mm. are relying on Absolutely. the sort of emotional free labour of volunteers to make this to make this number a reality. And it is one of those things that focuses the mind. Um, the only the last thing I wanted to say is that one of the reasons I think that this story has struck a chord in the way that it has is because it happened out in the open. And I think that so often with domestic violence, it happens behind closed doors and so we don't see it. And because we don't see it, it's really easy to be immune, I suppose, to the horror of it and to sort of, not in a sinister way, but to sort of assume that's something that wouldn't happen to me because you know, I don't know what that looks like. I think last week, unfortunately, Australia got a clear look at what this does look like and it can look like a loving, innocent woman with her three children getting ready to go off for the day and being murdered in daylight by a man who had shown incredibly dangerous signs before but wasn't but he was free to terrorize those Mm. children and his his former wife on the street and I think that's one of the reasons why this has captured imagination not imagination but captured the the sentiment that it has Mm. Um, and I think that's something that is actually important because I think until people recognise exactly how horrible this is, we won't change it. Mm. Okay, so if you or anyone you know needs help, you can call 1800RESPECT, which is 1800 737 732.
And in an emergency called triple and in zero. An, yes, yes, of course. Um, so on to our next topic now, um, women in STEM. So last week, almost 400 women in STEM gathered for the Catalyzing Women in Science conference. I should say it was more like 400 women in science, which is one component of STEM. Um, so... A little earlier, I uh, had the good fortune of being able to have a short chat with uh, Lisa Harvey-Smith, who is an astronomer, an author, and um, a big hero of my uh, six-year-old son. Um, and she's Australia's first Women in STEM ambassador. So she obviously has a lot to say about um, getting more women into STEM, including the fact that in Australia at the moment, we actually have more than 300 programs um, that are aimed at promoting women and girls into STEM. Ex- except we're not really seeing much shift in the numbers. It's still around uh, – women still make up around 17% of this workforce. And we actually don't have any way of measuring how well those programs work, which I thought was particularly interesting. So I will cross to that conversation now. To, after two days in, at the conference in Adelaide, um, what were some of the key numbers that were discussed there when it comes to women in STEM and getting girls into the field? Well, the basic and quite sad fact is that only 17% of STEM qualified people in Australia um, are female. So that's a pretty sobering statistic, but we know that it varies a lot between fields, so in health and medical sciences. Um, and those research areas, there are more women. Um, but then in things like engineering and IT and physical sciences, it's much lower, as low as about 10%. So yeah. It's, um, yeah, some pretty big structural issues that we need to contend with. Yeah, and so those numbers, so the high numbers in some of those fields could be masking even bigger issues in, in those other fields, like like you say, with engineering. Absolutely, yeah. We really need to look at the focus areas, and those are the yeah, engineering, physical sciences, IT, um, because these are also the big boom areas. You know, where we're trying to solve the world's problems, uh, climate change, all the technologies that will be needed um, to try and improve the world and, and the state of our, our world. Um, really, will be in these areas, engineering, IT. Um, so we've got to get got to get working. I mean, are we? I mean, we, we want to think that the numbers are shifting and are moving in the right direction, but that's not necessarily the case, is it? Well, no. I mean, we, well, there are a few ways to measure um, women and girls' participation in STEM. Some are through the education system, um, and we're getting better measures now of girls' participation. Both girls' and boys' participation in the physical sciences and maths are actually going down um, mm-hmm. over the uh, past decade, so that's not a good thing. Um, and we know that uh, women are still dropping out of careers after their PhD, if they're doing PhDs, mm. um, in sort of uh, in the workforce. So women are leaving in their 30s and often not coming back. So, you know, there's two things to focus on there. The, the attraction of young women into the sciences and then the retention. So are women staying? And, and that's really the two big focus areas for me. And so... With your, your time in the role so far, and I know that obviously there's still work to do and things that you're, you're working on and projects particularly that you're working on there, but I mean, what do you see as uh, or what do you perceive to be some of the key barriers? There are lots of barriers, actually. Um, there's a great um, infographic in the Women in STEM Decadal Plan that shows the barriers are in a range of areas. So right from the get-go, um, the studies to show that the way that parents talk to girls and boys are very different. Um, so interestingly, parents um, spend three times 
longer talking to young two and three year old boys about maths and numbers than they do to their girls at the same age. So even right from the very, very start of, of children's lives, they're being really influenced in different ways depending on their gender. So that's really got stopped and, and it's about educating parents um, and, and looking at our own biases and the way that we interact with young children. Then mm. it goes right through the school system, um, you know, stereotypes and unhelpful kind of stereotypes about what scientists look like um, and that they're sort of socially awkward misfits, those kind of stereotypes that we might laugh at on TV shows like The Big Bang Theory. But, you know, really it's very harmful to the, the image of science and technology and it makes it a place that girls don't want to be part of. Mm-hmm. And I mean, some of the barriers later on as well. I mean, one of the things that you just mentioned earlier was uh, the idea of women dropping out after they're doing their PhDs. Yeah. What, what's happening um, there? Well, there are lots of um, barriers in workplaces, systemic ones. Um, women are often, you know, in my field, astrophysics, I went through my whole university life with only, I think I only ever had one course taught by a woman. Um, and that was a, a maths course and, and probably 20 or 30 taught by by men. And I was the only woman doing my degree. And that's such a, such a common um, experience for women, being the only woman in the room, having all your managers and supervisors being male. Um, it's just a, a rotten environment um, sometimes, a highly competitive environment mm-hmm. um, and at times a toxic environment. So there's sexism, um, there's a feeling of not belonging. Um, and there's a lack of career progression in many cases. Women go into um, roles with the same qualifications. They get a lower starting salary. They get slower career progression. They're less likely to have female managers uh, and people to look up to and to mentor them through that career path. Mm. So a huge number of areas, you know, where just as in other, you know, organizational settings, in, in STEM organizations, these are problems too. Mm. And I mean, so I've, I've seen you mention in a couple of your your speeches now, including the one that you did at the National Press Club and also at um, the Catalyzing Gender Equity 2020 conference that you were just at in Adelaide last week. Well, you, you note the fact that, um, I mean, Australia's got over 300 programs that aim to promote th- uh, women and girls into STEM careers, but we, we can't really see much shift in the numbers So do you know what's working at the moment? Well, that's one of the problems. We don't know what's working. Um, So we're working hard with the government to create an evaluation framework. So that that means figuring out what works. Um, So the organisations, a lot of organisations do, you know, promote STEM to girls. They try and get um, better teaching sort of pedagogical approaches. They try and um, engage girls in projects. But sometimes these are almost wasted opportunities because um, they're, they're one-off programs or they might be longer programs, but they're not evaluated effectively. So we just don't know if they're working and they're money well spent. So we've got a real push now to evaluate the programs properly. Um, and I've got a research associate called Isabel Kingsley who's working on this. Um, mm. She's just finishing her PhD on the evaluation of educational programs and, and how to do that effectively. So we're driving this change so that people aren't just doing these programs and hoping for the best, uh, fingers crossed that, mm. that it engages girls, um, but, but actually making sure that we're, we're doing things that work and we spend more money on focus areas that, that do work and do get the results. 
Do you, I mean, having not completed this research yet, but I mean, do you have any, any ideas, even maybe from your own career anecdotally on things and, that really did work for you or the people around you? A lot of great things inspire kids into STEM, um, but that's not the problem. It, the problem isn't that girls are not interested in science, and they, they really are. We see that up to about year three or grade three um, in primary school. But the problem is that um, girls don't see a pathway for themselves. They don't see role models. They don't see, they don't identify with the stereotypes of a of STEM professional, um, and not necessarily with you know the way that it's taught in schools as well. So the programs that work are programs that get girls to see what STEM really is in a work setting. They're long term. They're inspiring, but but also we've got to look at the systemic issues that drive girls away um, and, and really work on the problem from both of those sides, inspiration and then retention and, and looking at realistic career paths for women that enable them to absolutely excel and get right to the top um, of their careers and, and unleash their full potential. And. So that's uh, taking it back to, to you and your experience, Lisa. I mean, I, I know that you, you mentioned that it's not it's not only about what inspires girls into the field. Obviously, it, it's what happens from then on. But from your experience, I'd love to hear what inspired you to pursue a career in astronomy and possibly what led to the pathway to make that happen. I um, had a bit of an unusual upbringing. Um, my dad um, said at the age of 11, I'd finished primary school and... Um, my mum was the head teacher at my primary school. She went out and worked. My dad stayed at home with the kids. Mm. Um, so it was sort of role reversal from what's uh, traditional. And my dad said, would you like to go to secondary school or would you like to learn at home? So I actually taught myself at home um, instead of um, high school. Mm. So my home education really gave me the opportunity to explore new areas, um, new subjects that may not be in the national curriculum. And I just fell in love with astronomy by simply looking at the stars. And it's as simple as that. I just absolutely was spellbound by the, the night sky and the views um, and just read and read and read as many books as I could. And um, I, I fell in love with it. And I had no doubt from the age of about 14, 15, that I wanted to be an astronomer. And, and that's what I did. Wow, so, so, so self-directed bit of, bit of learning. That's, um, that's incredible. So you were able to, Absolutely. you had the time and the space to pursue passions then. That's right, yeah. I have many passions and music and sports and philosophy and poetry, but astronomy was the one that really stuck because I, I saw, I guess, role models, although they were mostly male, I, I, I was excited by the prospect of space travel. I was excited by the first female astronaut from the UK where I grew up, mm. um, Helen Sharman. She went up onto the Mir space station uh, in the 1990s. And that's the time that really influenced me. And, and I saw that you could do it. A woman from where mm. I was from mm. had, had been into space and it just it just made me spellbound. Have, have you had the opportunity to meet her or, or make contact with her since then? I did. I, was, uh, I did meet Helen Sharman when I was about 15, 16. I went to a summer uh, school called uh, Space School mm -hmm. in the UK and um, she was there and I got to sit and have lunch with her and that was just incredible. Yeah. I was a little <laughs> bit shy, but um, <laughs> I still remember it very vividly. Um, so, you know, I, I love to be that kind of role model now who can talk to young people and say, 
you know, this is a great career if you want if you want to do this. But also, you, we've got to be honest with young people. It's a tough career path mm. um, sometimes, and um, we need to. I need to be changing the, the systems and structures um, so that the path is a lot smoother for young people today. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Lisa. Pleasure. Pleasure. And for the work that you do, we look forward to seeing the results of that research. Thank you. And I love the work that you do at Women's Agenda. It's, it's really um, great to see that, that getting out there. Oh, thank you. Okay, well, that was Lisa there. Um, firstly, um, Shivani, you didn't overhear me during this conversation earlier. Georgie did. So one thing that um, so uh, that I found particularly uh, awesome at the end of that conversation was uh, where Lisa mentioned her um, high school years and how she was basically self-directed in the way that she learned, which gave her the opportunity to go and pursue all these incredible passions and to really hone in on her love of astronomy, which was so interesting. I, I, I don't know how it would work for all kids. I don't think it would work for all kids, but it clearly has worked for her. But um, earlier, I mean, she did particularly make the point of when it comes to um, trying to get more girls into STEM careers, it really does start early. She mentioned that it's that there's research to show that when it comes to two and three-year-olds, that parents are spending a lot more time talking to boys about maths than they are to girls. I have no, I, I, I have no way to know if that's true or not. From my own experience, I only have boys. Georgia, you only have girls. Mm. Um, but where do you feel that that your girls land in that conversation in terms of how much of an exposure they're getting to mathematics? Yeah, well, see, it's it's interesting because obviously I don't have boys, so I can't make a direct comparison to this. But one of the things I've often thought is that um, we do, particularly with the younger kids, focus a lot on reading. Um, books probably are more of a component of their home life than numbers are. Mm. And it's not a deliberate choice. And certainly with our two older girls who are at primary school, I've found that they we've had to work at maths more uh, just because I think it wasn't such a component of what we did earlier in their life, whereas reading and books is something that we've done the whole time, storytelling, speaking, um, whereas maths is something that I've found. And, I mean, they both enjoy it is so applicable in so many parts of our life, you know, what we pay for groceries, how many, you know, counting various things. Um, but it is something I've thought about that is that something that I do because they're girls that we focus more on books mm. um, or is that just because if I had girls or boys that's where our focus would, would be just because that's what I had when I grew up? Mm, I have no idea. Ours is probably a little bit opposite to that but I don't know if that's because there was um, an, an interest shown or, or not and that could happen amongst mm. girls or boys. Mm. That's not a boy thing, not a girl thing. So mm. it is really hard to know from your personal experience if that does occur and I wonder also how much then it does occur in um, early learning situations and mm. in, in, in primary school in those first few years as well. Um, it's hard to tell but I think it's something that just being aware of the issue that it could be happening, mm. it, it might make us – you know, think that through when we do talk to our girls and our boys, our nieces and our nephews, our, the and friends think, of our friends. And, yeah. You know, I think there's been enough um, research to show that those sort of anecdotes about girls and boys sort of being put into two different streams from a really young age, we know it happens. And I think being aware of yeah. that mm. um, is obviously the first point at which you can sort of start to change it. But I do think it is really interesting how that dynamic plays out. Mm. Shivani, what it's are your thoughts on this? Yeah, look, speaking of dynamics, I think we've just got to be really careful around what we normalise because, you know, I heard this time and time again. In fact, the first time I heard it was from 
my GP when I was five years old and it was seared into my brain uh, where he said, oh, well, all the girls in my class were always smarter than me. The girls were always smarter than the boys. And so I always got this impression that girls were really smart and girls were really studious. And, of course, I was incredibly studious. Uh, I was, you know, a self-proclaimed geek, and I probably still am a geek. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> you know, that was that was always what I got told. But then you get older and you realise the girls are smarter in general, but the boys got more money and they got more recognition. And we know from the gender pay gap perspective, even when you graduate and you go to, um, you know, just straight out of university, um, the, the guys will generally get around five grand a year more mm. so than the women. And, and I think that we need to be really careful around not only normalising the fact that girls should also be studying maths and science and so therefore getting across all, all of STEM, but also they need to be putting their hand up and being recognised for it if they are not being socialised to do so in their schooling environment and in their own sort of, you know, micro circle, being their family and their friends and so forth. Look, I know that my maths experience was certainly very different. I grew up in a family of girls. My poor dad never got to watch anything that he wanted to watch because there were three daughters. Um, mm. Me being the youngest of three, and uh, maths was really honed into us. I remember my my elder sister would sit there with me and do my maths homework. She had a ruler, and um, you know, and she would tap the ruler on the desk if I ever got something wrong. And she'd do a little tap, and she'd say, "Close is not correct." So I had to get it right because my response was, oh, but I was close, <laughs> as you do when you're, when you're 10 or, you know, something like that. So, um, so you know, it, math was always really honed in. And then the recognition part was really honed in too. So I think that early, early learning is imperative. I think from a parenting perspective, there's so much that can be learned from Angela Duffy's work around grit with mm -hmm. children and, you know, the language. So, you know, you try so hard. Um, and look, you're getting better at it so that, you know, no matter what it is that your children are learning, whether it's math, whether it's science, technology, anything like that, they know that it's the effort that gets them there. Uh, but I also think that you need to be talking and normalising the fact that you need to be getting recognition from it as well, um, you know, and that, and that would go a really long way. Mm. And I think that if we're from a structural perspective, we do need to think about being a little bit freer around um, how we encourage our, you know, our leaders of the future around what roles they're going to be, um, you know, taking forward. So I, I was talking to a girlfriend of mine who went to um, a school where, you know, all the girls were encouraged to become, you know, something science related um, or, you know, become an engineer or become a scientist. And she was the only one that wanted to pursue something in marketing. And she felt like she was the odd one out and felt really strange about it. I think it's important from a structural level, from a schooling perspective, that we encourage you know boys and girls to be really open-minded about which career they take, um, which will therefore create those bigger outcomes around more girls going to STEM careers and, and you know boys going to different careers as well. Mm, okay, all right. And once they get into those careers, the employers that they have when they get there, uh, we've been thinking about what makes a good employer for women. And this follows the 119 employers that have received the uh, Great Place, not no, not Great Place to Work, they call it something else. Employer of Choice. Employer of Choice for Gender Equality from the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. Uh, this comes out every year around International Women's Day. And as soon as it comes out, Georgie and I always receive like dozens of different press releases from different organisations that have just received this citation. Um, so it is, I mean, obviously it's a great achievement to get this citation, but leaving that aside... Um, Georgie, what do you think makes a good employer? Well, I think... Other than, like, the great employer where you uh, currently... Currently work. Uh, well, I'll, tell you, I'll yeah. tell you, Women's yeah. Agenda is a wonderful employer. <laughs> um, and I'm not even... Not paid to say that. 
I think that what makes a good employer is not just having particular fancy policies, but it's having a culture in which the types of things those policies are specifically trying to enable are encouraged. So I think that an employer that recognises that um, efficiency and output matters a lot more than hours Mm -hmm. at a desk, I think an employer that recognises that um, employees of any age and any stage are human beings that have got lives outside of whatever they do at work and that um, having a life outside of work doesn't make them um, a bad employee, it makes them a human being. And supporting employees throughout whatever those needs are outside of work is ultimately going to benefit everyone if you can um, better enable them to combine their work and life outside of work. Mm, Exactly. And Shivani, so you've been an employee, you also employ people. What do you think is at the heart of what makes a great employer for women? Look, I think for a woman, a you know, actually for anyone, I think having flexible work policies makes you an ideal candidate to be an employer of choice. Um, but I think that there's a big difference between having a flexible work policy and having one that's actually enacted. I um, I know all too well the you know the, the the big sort of corporation jargon around. Oh, we've got this policy, we've got that policy, we've got all these great you know e-learning and so forth. We want you to tick it off and make sure that you've you know you said that you've seen it. Um, but the implementation of that is usually fairly poor, and that's um, quite uh, you know, quite well played out when it comes to flexible work. Where most organisations have a policy it sits somewhere in their HR portal, but it's never actually. Um, you know, enacted. And so mm. as a result of that, what you find is that when women are needing some time off work, whether it be to, you know, pick up, take care of the kids, for example, um, they generally find that, you know, it's, it's quite stigmatised. And at the same time, when men then want to take that on as well, they find the, the equal level of stigma around flexible work. So I think that if you really want to be an employer of choice and you really have a great degree of trust and capability in your employees, it's really important that you do choose employees um, that you fit, that you feel that you have absolute trust in, of course. But if that is the case, then you should enable flexible work. Um, you'll find that morale and productivity will actually increase. As you said, Georgie, it's all about the efficiency of the work rather than the hours of the work. Um, I, I'm, you know, I'm the same. I'm all about the output um, rather than the hours. And um, and as a result, if leaders were to then take advantage of these flexible work policies, then it will then you know cross pollinate all throughout the organisation, and everyone will feel emboldened to be able to do so without the stigma. And you're going to find that from a you know from a gender equality perspective as well, that workload is going to be better shared between the the, the mums and the dads mm. as well. So it has great benefits across the board. Yeah. My final two cents on this is mm. that, and it comes from a bit of research that we did last year, um, and it's about, I think that toxic managers, uh, um, that's a good employer weeds out the toxic managers earlier so that they don't affect everyone else. Mm. And all these mm. policies and all these things, particularly flexible work and paid parental leave and everything else that makes it possible to have a family or and a life outside of work, it really comes down to your manager saying yes and being supportive of you in mm. those in, of, mm. of working yeah. your own way and trusting you, like you say, Shivani. So for me, I, I think that workplaces need to weed out the toxic managers. Unfortunately, that's not that easy to measure 
as well and to to award people and 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 tick people on for doing a good job on but yeah and also i think that's i think Mm. that's so interesting because as we know and i mean i've I've had limited experience working for big corporations but when i worked in big law firms for example every different practice group was almost Mm. like a different company in it in in itself um you know and i know that that's the same in lots of businesses different units it's like a different culture and that does come down to the individual managers and so you can have one company that's got three terrific managers in one function and in one function they've got someone terrible and so for the people in that group they can't access the flexible works that they're supposed to or any of those sorts of policies. Mm, So they end up with completely different cultures and that's Mm. classic in law firms isn't it because Mm. uh, people get to partner on their uh, ability and capabilities as a great lawyer Mm. not necessarily as As a a great manager. manager. And that happens across the board Mm. I mean it happens with teachers it happens with um, nurses with all sorts of things you can be technically very good at something and you're not necessarily um, equipped to manage okay all right so in the final few minutes let's talk about what's been on our minds this week aside from the topics that we've already discussed throughout this podcast but Shivani I'll go to you first yeah so Harvey Weinstein sexual assault and rape mm-hmm. case has been on my mind this week um the convictions, I think, um, are a huge win. And I think that it's also a great, you know, of course, we know that it's part of the Me Too movement or, you know, it was a really big turning point for it. But I think that it really acknowledged that sexual assault um, can be really nuanced and there is no straight line or, you know, model example of what this could look like to use a, a horrible scripture for it. Um, and I, I think that, you know, by, by getting this conviction, I think that, you know, it enables so many people to have to step up and take accountability for actions that haven't been done for so long. And, um, and it really, it's a turning point for people just taking and believing in women. And um, mm-hmm. it's, it's just been huge this week. So um, it's been playing out of my mind. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, myself and, uh, and you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of others have reached big sigh of relief. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Georgie. Right, I'm going to go somewhere different this week because uh, we've covered a lot of current affairs type mm. subjects. What has actually been on my mind lately is parenting and specifically how um, it's just an ever-evolving beast. And mm-hmm. so I just I think it's one of those things where when we are talking about um any of these subjects, but about how individuals manage their work and their life outside of work. I am constantly reminded that parenting um, little and older people is just so challenging. And it presents, you know, for example, my youngest, and, you know, I've had two other children. I thought I might be better at managing tantrums, Mm. but my youngest is just going through a phase where she's had a couple of days of horrendous tantrums and I'm finding myself going back to all of the books trying to figure out how the hell I actually manage it. And I wonder how many of us walking around with these sort of quite pressing concerns on their mind, quite apart from everything else they're doing Mm. in their life. It's the same as the law firm partner. Like... You become the parent, but Without you never actually skills. learn how to be a parent. Yes. And like a law firm, they become a partner, and but they don't actually necessarily learn how to manage staff as part of. Yes, and I am a parent of three children, and I still don't know how to be a parent of three children. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm Help. with you there. I'm with you there. So that is on my mind. <laughs> so on my mind this week, um, I thought I'd end on a bit of a positive. It's not always easy to come by uh, good news stories in the environmental space. 
But it's happened this week with the announcement that uh, Norwegian oil company Equinor will not be pursuing its drilling project in the Great Australian Bight. They claim that it's not commercially viable. But um, I think that given they're only a few months away from drilling, I think we can safely say that the uh, long and extensive environment uh, campaign from mm. numerous parts of the community has played a massive part in it. And there are lots of women involved in the Fight for the Bike campaign, um, the very public faces like Lane Beachley and Dr Karen Phelps, um, also MP Rebecca Sharkey, who really lobbied heavy at the, on the Norwegian side, but numerous other women there, particularly at the, the, the grassroots level behind the scene, participating in various campaigns, paddle outs and various other things. And it happened, it made a difference. I think it really shows the, the power of, of people, power and why it's actually worth really getting involved in these sorts of campaigns. So that's it from us. Thank you very much, Shivani. We will do this Thank in person you. very, very soon. Can't wait. Thank you. Georgie. Thank you. Good to chat. And that is the Women's Agenda podcast for another week. Uh, This podcast is produced by Agenda Media. And a reminder that you can get access to all these stories that we've been talking about in the uh, podcast notes. And also you can subscribe to Women's Agenda if you don't already. We go out just before lunchtime every day. Thank you.